There she was, just walking down the street singing. She looked fine and I nearly lost my mind Before I knew it, she was walking next to me singing Holding my hand just as natural as can be singing We walked on to my door We walked on to my door Then we kissed a little more single day singing Welcome to the Strange Brew Podcast. My name's Jason Barnard, and that was Manfred Mann and Do uh, Diddy Diddy. And I've got the Manfred's Tom McGuinness here on the Strange Brew here today to talk about some of his highlights in the group, as well as McGuinness Flint and his solo career. So let's hear a fantastic chat with Tom McGuinness. There we are. Ah, brilliant. It's a pleasure to speak with you, Tom. I'm Huge fan of Manfred Mann, of course, as oh, one of been the, well, the great bands of the 60s. And I've um, seen over your, your work after that period as well. Right. <laughs> You're fully informed. I hope so. So it'd be re- remiss of me not to first refer to the uh, the relatively new compilation hits from the 60s, which covers the Paul Jones and Mike Darbo years of Manfred Mann in the 60s. So that's the HMV and Fontana years, isn't it? That's right. And uh, yeah. I'm knocked out with the cover. Lars Vorman has done the front cover, and uh, I think it's fantastic. He deserves another Grammy after Revolver. Absolutely. But yeah, it's a sort of, well, to be honest, I put it together with Steve Fernie, who uh, looks after business affairs for us. When I say I put it together, I mean I came up with a running order and ran it round everyone to make sure Manfred, Mike Hope, Mike Talbot, Klaus, etc., all approved. Still a democracy. And you've contributed to the sleeve notes as well, haven't you? Oh, yeah. 
Yeah, and Manfred put a bit in, and I think Mike Hug did as well. Yeah, I used to write uh, sleeve notes for the EPs and things like that back in the sixties, and uh, I've done a few uh, sleeve notes for McGuinness Flint and, and uh, the Blues Band over the years when they've done compilations. I quite enjoy doing it. I mean, I have to admit, I'm never sure I get all the facts right. But what I've realized is if I talk to one other person and we've shared the same event, is what he remembers is what I remember. And there's the truth, <laughs> which, is, which is another thing. Anyway, yeah, I've done the sleeve notes. So you first joined the, the Manfreds on bass guitar, and that was, was that after the recording of 54321? That's absolutely right, Jason. Yeah, I'm very fortunate for me. You know, I joined and they immediately have a hit record, which I'm not even on. Uh, yeah, they were Dave Richmond, who was their bass player, really good player, went on to play on I don't know how many sessions. He played on some of the Paul Jones solo tracks and things like that. If you named an act from the 60s, Dave played on it. Dave was a really good bass player, but he wasn't happy playing R&B which is what the band was doing then, you know, doing Muddy Waters and Howling Wolf, Bo Diddley, Chuck Berry, all of that. And uh, what would we have done without Chess Records? <laughs> anyway, they um, they were unhappy with Dave. And I, I was in touch with Paul because this is late 1963. Back in the summer of 62, he and I tried to get a band together, but failed. But we stayed in contact. And... Uh, I was talking to Paul and he said the band were unhappy with Dave on bass because he's really a jazz player and he was finding it constricting. And I, I said, oh, I play bass, never having played bass in my <laughs> life. But I thought it's only got four strings and I can play six strings. So very quickly, I joined very quickly after that. It's funny, I'd I'd spent the whole of 63 without a job deliberately because I was trying to actually make it as a, I wanted to, write scripts for film and radio right. and television and stuff like that. But I got nowhere with that, and I'd had to take a day job as a furniture porter in a department store. And um, I went off on the Saturday morning, and I got a message from my girlfriend saying, there's a note put in the front door saying, can you be at the Ealing Club tonight? You've got the job. At least I was probably on probation. Yeah, I went along to the Ealing Club. They handed me a bass guitar and said, the first tune's in E. And off we went, playing to a full crowd in the Ealing Club. And I guess I did all right, because they didn't tell me. Yeah, you're still around. And you were very familiar with that Ealing Club scene, weren't you? You'd been in the Roosters with Eric Clapton and yeah. all the sort of stones. Yeah, actually, not with the Ealing Club. I didn't go there so much. Right. I saw Alexis Corners Blues Incorporated at a pub called the Queen Vic in Cheam, right. South London. Cheam is famous from Tony Hancock, who lived in East Cheam, for those of you who have heard of Hancock. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And... Uh, yeah, I saw Alexis there, and I went to places like Studio 51 to see Cyril Davis. That was the old Ken Collier Club. I used to go and see the Stones at the Station Hotel, Richmond, throughout the summer of 63. Eric had just joined the Yardbirds, and I was hanging around, so I went and sat in with the Yardbirds one night at the Star, and I think it was called the Star in Croydon. There was a whole scene going on. You know, it was great. There were the animals up in Newcastle. There's Spencer Davis in Birmingham. 
there was a whole lot of bands in in London, including the Stones, the Yardbirds, Manfred Mann, Georgie Fame, who was in a rather different bag. But and we all bumped into each other, and we were all. It felt like a Freemasonry because it was just astounding to meet someone else who'd heard of Howling Wolf or BB King or Hubert Sumlin or any of these names. And, uh, you know, there was an immediate bond. I mean, going back about nine months from me joining, I was trying to, I was looking for a gig from early 63 on. And I was invited to an audition at the station hotel in Richmond. And it turned out when I turned up that I was in the wrong place. I turned up with a little lamp in one hand, guitar in the other hand, and there were three trombonists on stage, string bass player, keyboards, acoustic piano, drums. And the guy who got me to the audition was a guy called Dave Hunt, who ran a trad band up until then, but he was trying to make the transition into R&B. He was into a sort of Count Basie type swinging jazz, like when Count Basie had Joe Williams and doing things like, you know, well, all right, okay, you win. He was doing all this swinging stuff. I walked in. I knew I was in the wrong place. And um, I got up and did one song with them. And I was. he said, what should we play? And I was trying to think of something he might know. So I said, Kansas City. And he said, yeah, great. E flat, that good for you? No, E flat was not good for me. But I tried to. Play. And he counted it in. And it was a nice swinging Count Basie type feel. But I'm thinking... Either Little Richard, who recorded Kansas City, or Wilbur Harrison, who recorded Kansas City, sort of Jimmy Reedish feel with Wilbur Harrison. So we set off in two different directions after the count, you know, and I played the whole tune with him and finished and unplugged and uh, left the stage. Oh, he wanted me to play another one, but I knew I was in the wrong place. And um, this is just getting back to. Yeah. A pleasure to meet someone who knows what you're talking about when you say Sonny Boy Williamson or Muddy Waters. And I came off stage and I was there with my girlfriend, who was a, an art student. And it was a whole story. But like many years went past before we got married. She's now my wife, but she was my girlfriend. And I came off stage and she said, how was it? I said, oh, it's terrible. Not for me. She said, never mind. This is Eric. I'm at art school with him. He likes the blues. And that's how I met Eric Clapton. And, you know, Eric and I just spent the next half an hour saying, you know, I'd say Jimmy Reed and he'd say Elmore James and then I'd say Buddy Guy. And so all we did was drop names of records we'd heard and people we admired. So, yeah, I joined on bass guitar December 63. And by the end of January 64, I think it was, they got their first hit with 5-4-3-2-1. Dave Richmond went off and became a renowned session player and he's still around. We were playing about a year ago and he came down to the gig. We were doing a little jazz club in, um, and this was with the Manfreds. We were doing a place called the Concord, just outside Southampton, which is where the band had been playing in 1963. Not the same building, but the same club, which has gone on ever since then. One of the great things about Manfred Mann in the 60s, especially in those early years, you had the roots in blues, but you had the ear for a commercial song what about Do Our Diddy Diddy then? What's the story behind um, that song? Well, we had two hits, five, four, three, two, one, got to about three or four, and then we followed it up and we wrote, you know, they'd all written five, four, three, two, one, and then we all wrote a thing called Hubble Bubble, got to number 12 in the charts. And our A&R man, our producer at EMI, John Burgess, 
very good producer when I listen to the old records. His production and Norman Smith on engineer. When you think of the basic equipment they're working with, they got a good sound out of it. Yeah. They captured what we were doing. Anyway, uh, John, after this, these two, he said, you know, it's not right bands writing their own material. You've got to look outside. You've got to look to professional songwriters. And, uh, you know, we won't be doing any more of your material, basically. Which, given that EMI had the Beatles at that moment, who were writing mm -hmm. all their own material and being hugely successful. But no, uh, he said, you've got to look outside. Anyway, we were recording the first album, The Five Faces of Manfred Band, which basically consisted of the live set. So it had smokestack lightning on it and got my mojo working, things like that. Down the road, a piece, a song that Chuck Berry recorded. And um, we'd recorded pretty well everything in the live set. And John said, is there anything left? And we said, well, we're doing this song. And it was do our diddy diddy. Paul had bought the Exciters record, but it wasn't going down live. You know, they loved Smokes Like Lightning. They loved Got My Mojo Working, do our diddy diddy. And we were actually thinking of dropping it at the point at which John said, is there anything else? And we played it to him and said, you know, it's really dying as a live number. We played it. He said, that's a hit. So we recorded it, even though we were still on the point. And uh, for all I know, we may well have dropped it until it came out as a single because it didn't have the excitement that the crowd were looking for. And uh, we might never have recorded it. You know, if John had asked two weeks later, it wouldn't have been in the set. Such are the chances that happened along the way. So that came out and it was a huge hit. Number one in England, number one in America. We got those headlines in England, which, of course, everyone gets once in a while. Manfred's knock Beatles off number one spot. Well, yeah, someone has to do it. It's just that their sales are declining and ours are still going up. And uh, it was great. It opened the world up for us. You know, we went off to Australia, off to America, all over Europe, uh, mostly just doing promotion. Though we did a short tour of America. How did you find going over to the States in that period? It was great. You know, we flew over. I think there was there was only club class. People flew so rarely, you know. So it was very comfortable. And Pan Am gave us all shoulder bags. And we were all photographed on the steps of the plane and all that. And then we arrive and um, ah, there's a stretch limousine. We've never seen one. I mean, stretch limousine to take us into the center of New York. And we... Uh, turn the radio on you know and we just found all these stations there were two stations in england three actually if you count the third program which was classics but there was a light program and the home service home service was a drama and news and the light program was popular music which meant you might hear six records in the day that you liked and the rest was all cinema organ recitals and brass <laughs> bands and stuff like that so there's these stations we turn it on they're playing Lowell Folsom and then we switch over to the next one they're playing the miracles and we say oh we'd gone to heaven you know and uh yeah it was great I mean America was the place of dreams then yeah all the great films from America all the great music from America even the great novels like Norman Mailer and people like that and Hemingway you know so everything was coming from America. It all changed just around from 63 onwards. It was all happening in England. Films were being made. Books were being written that were making worldwide waves. But until then, 
you know, to be in America, to see the uh, Manhattan skyline for the first time at night, uh, to go up the Empire State Building, which we did all those things. And, you know, we did things like we went to see John Coltrane play in, in Greenwich Village. Wow. I didn't go because I'd already seen Little Richard slightly earlier in the year in England with Sam Cooke. But the guys all went down to the, um, uh, oh, God, what's the theatre in Harlem? Apollo. The Apollo. They all went down to see Little Richard there. They were the, practically the only white faces in the audience. I wish I'd gone in some ways, but they, uh, I was doing other things. I've got cousins in New York coming from an Irish background. Yeah, they're um, they're all there. And they were they were taking me to Irish bars out of the way, which was another experience that I'm very glad to have had. And we'd gone to America to do promo to do Shindig, you know, which was the big TV show directed by Jack Good, who'd made a name for himself doing Oh Boy in England. And um, we did a whole load of recordings for them, and we went down to the Gold Star Studios to record some backing tracks for Shindig. So, you know, we're in the studio that the Beach Boys, that we didn't know about the Beach Boys then, but we knew Phil Spector recorded yeah. at Gold Star. And, uh, you know, we just laid down some basic backing tracks there for use on the show. So another great experience, and you know. You pick up tips as well, because I saw they got a bass drum up on a table with a beater beside it. And the drummer didn't play bass drum on the records. Someone played the bass drum separately so they could really mix, get a good mix out of it. They didn't do that on our tracks. We just laid our stuff down as normally. So it was magical, magical. And we were doing a tour with Peter and Gordon. Only about 12 dates here, there and everywhere. I mean, literally flying from Toronto to Florida and then back up to Chicago. And, you know, we're going from Florida in December to Chicago in December, which is like going from the Cape Verde Islands to Baffin Bay in terms of temperature. And in New York, the promoter decided that we needed another act on the show, not just the two of us. Actually, it was the third guy on there, Travis Womack, who's a Southern guitarist, made a couple of albums for Capricorn or someone like that later. But he was the backing band for Peter and Gordon. And he also had a single out at the time called Scratchy. And America was very regionalized. And we'd go to Chicago and Peter and Gordon would be number four. We'd be number seven. And Scratchy would be number 32. Then we'd get to Clearwater, Florida, and Scratchy would be number two. And we'd be number five, and Peter and Gordon would be number 13. And uh, so there we were. They wanted another act on the New York show, the Academy of Music we were playing at. And uh, the promoter decided it would be a good idea to have the Exciters on. Ah. <laughs> so we both did. Do, uh, do, 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 do. And we got to meet the Exciters, who had no idea that their record was out in England, and that's how we got to hear it. And we were chatting to one or other of them, and... Uh, you know, he said to the other, hey, guys, come over. Our record was out in England. That's how they learned the song. And we met Jeff Barry, who'd written the song. He came up to our hotel room. Uh, we were in this lovely hotel on the corner of Fifth Avenue in Central Park, a uh, sort of hotel I'd never seen in England, you know, telephones in the bathroom, room service. Room service just consisted in England of a grumpy night porter in a hotel who'd say, well, I could make you a cheese sandwich, I suppose, if I could be bothered. And over there, you ring down and, you know, fresh fruit salads brought out to you. The life of luxury. Yeah, Jeff Barry came to visit us. 
tried to punt another couple of songs for us to do. He turned up dressed as a city gentleman with a bowler hat, rolled umbrella, in striped suit, tie. <laughs> Heaven knows why. He looked like something of, like carry on up the city. But uh, it was great to meet him. And he literally did say, this is a line a lot of people have used. Paul said to him, what does do what did he did he mean? And he said, means I never need to work again. <laughs> and after Paul went solo, he was in New York doing a play called Conduct Unbecoming on Broadway. And uh, he went out for supper one night with Lieber and Stoller. Quite a nice thing to do. And uh, the waitress came over to take their order. And I don't know, Mike Stoller, Jerry Lieber said, uh, hi, whatever her name was, you know. Um, you're working here now? And she said, yeah, you know, things change. And uh, <clears throat> he gave the order to her. And uh, she went off back to put the order into the kitchen and uh, Lieber or Stoller it was, said to Paul, do you know who that was? And you said, no, it's the girl singer from the Exciters. Oh. And that is sad. I'm trying to write a memoir for my grandchildren. I realise how big a part Chance has played in my life. Yeah. Chance played a rotten trick on her and, and has smiled on me. I mean, I can see why you know, hits that I've had might never have happened. Like if you look at Mighty Quinn, we recorded that. In fact, the three number ones we had with um, Manfred Mann in the 60s, I already explained about do I did it, did If it hadn't continued in the live set, we might not have recorded yeah. it. It was John Burgess who spotted it. Then Pretty Flamingo. Now, Paul had handed in his notice. He was very gentlemanly about it. He said, until you found someone, I'm here. And we were still gigging and recording. And we John Burgess said, got this song, I think it's here. And it was Pretty Flamingo. And he played it. And Paul said, I don't really like it, John. And John said, listen, do me a favor, record it. I'm not sure if John knew that Paul was planning to leave at this point. Right. I don't think he did. And uh, he said, do it. And so Paul did it. And it was number one. I mean, Paul could have easily so I don't like it, I'm not doing it, but we did it. She's out of reach and out of sight When she walks by She brightens up the neighborhood Oh, every guy would make his If he just could, if she just would Some sweet day Paradise 
If she just would Some sweet day I'll make her mine Pretty flamingo Then every guy will envy me Cause paradise is where I'll be Sha-la-la on guitar and Jack Bruce was on bass. Jack had joined on bass by that time. Yeah, Mike Vickers in late 1963. Mike was a saxophonist, flute player, who learnt to play guitar in two weeks when the band decided they needed guitar as well. So by the time I joined, he was playing guitar, mostly rhythm and lots of saxophone and flute. So when Mike decided in 65 that he wanted to leave, concentrate on composing and arranging and stuff like that we knew we had to make some changes and i said i'd like to switch to my first instrument guitar i had been playing guitar on quite a lot of the records we'd done as well as mike and then i'd add, add the bass afterwards but like things things like if you gotta go where mike played some lead guitar on it and i played the rhythm guitar and then overdubbed the bass or maybe the other way around over yeah. the guitar but we decided we wanted to get jack on bass and I'd switch to guitar. We also decided to add a horn section so we could explore things and money was no object in those days. Do you know the story about Jack coming in and John Mayle? No. John Mayle lived about four doors down from Manfred in, in South London. They each had a house in the same road. We decided we wanted to get Jack and Manfred said, I can't steal Jack from John, and you know, he's my neighbor. I see him every day practically. And we kept grumbling and mumbling and saying, No, it's got to be Jack. We don't want anything. We're going to get Jack. So I can't remember who approached Jack. And Jack said, Yeah, I'd be interested. You know, got to work out. I've got to give John some notice. You know, anyway, John got wind of it, bumped into Manfred in the street and said, Are You stealing my bass player? And Manfred said, Of course not, John. I'd never do that. And about a week later, you know, Jack had left and joined us. And John recorded a song about it called Double Crossing Time, which people think it's about a relationship, but it's not. It's about us stealing stealing Jack away. So I got back to playing guitar and we got a horn section in. Uh, they stayed with us until Paul left. And we had the big hit again with Pretty Flamingo. Bruce Springsteen loved it and he's... He's done Pretty Flamingo live on stage quite a few times. How long was Jack there for and when did Klaus join? Jack was there about nine months, I think. Apart from Pretty Flamingo, I think the only stuff we recorded with him were, were some instrumental tracks. Because um, Mike Hug, Mike Vickers and Manfred had all come from the jazz area and they were interested in exploring that side of music. And uh, Jack fitted in really well to that. But Jack sang harmony on Pretty Flamingo as well as playing bass. He put in a really, it's an interesting harmony. He brings in a major seventh, which isn't used much in pop music, set by Burt Bacharach. What was the first single Klaus was on then, do you remember? Just Like a Woman, the Bob Dylan song. We actually went in and recorded a couple of tracks when Paul had left and uh, Jack was still in the band. And we were doing, we'd got a deal with Fontana. Actually, with Fontana in England and Mercury for America. 
Fontana for the whole world, but Mercury. But Mercury was a was wholly owned by Phillips anyway, like Fontana. Jack did a couple of recordings with Mike Darbo, but after that session, he said, I'm off, which was no reflection on Mike Darbo, but he didn't know Paul had left. You know, Mike just, uh, Jack just turned up for the next session and Mike Darbo was there and Jack said, where's Paul? And he said, he's left. And uh, Jack said, oh, well, I'll do the session, then I'm off because he'd got cream rehearsing anyway. Yeah. So again, chance plays a whole role in this. I knew a wonderful guitarist who lived in South London called Mac McGann. Fabulous blues ragtime picker, but he never wanted to be professional. He uh, was head of art department in one of the big advertising agencies in london because that was his thing art graphic design as well as playing wonderful guitar he taught me a particular guitar chord back in 1963 which i which i used on pretty flamingo it's a, a g and then you move to c and you leave the d of the g chord ringing in what you're doing it's great sustainy sound he taught me that and then a couple of a year or so later he sold me a national guitar body guitar which i played on pretty flamingo and then just about the time that jack bruce left i saw mac and uh we were chatting and he said um i hear jack bruce has left and i said yeah that's right he said uh, i've got this guy who's been doing some artwork for me you you should have him in the band and it was klaus vorman who'd been doing some graphic design for the advertising agent here and uh, yeah, Jack uh, Klaus came in straight away you know, and fitted in really well straight away as well. Different bass player to Jack. Klaus is more like I was as a bass player, straightforward rock and roll, like someone like Carl Radel. Yeah. Paul McCartney, who's a wonderful bass player. And uh, Jack was much more like Dave Richmond, inclined to fly up the neck and play 16 notes when two would be sufficient. But I feel very fortunate to have played with Jack and Klaus. And you mentioned about chance and circumstance in, in relation to Mighty Quinn. So what was that? Oh, yeah. Mighty Quinn. Again, chance, fortune, smiles on it. Al Grossman came to England with the basement tapes and invited us up to a sort of private listen. You know, we all went up and we picked about three or four songs out that we thought we could have a go at. So we were lucky we had first choice out of this selection. And... Uh, we we recorded Mighty Quinn, but we didn't feel it had worked. We didn't feel, in particular, Manfred wasn't happy with it. And then Mike had Lou Reisner, who was the head of Mercury Records. Mike Darbo had him round for a meal while Lou was in London. And Lou said, we'd had three hit singles in England, but none of them had met, meant anything in America. And Lou said, you know, we'd really do with an American hit out of you. Is there anything you I haven't heard that you've recorded? Anyway, Michael played him Mighty Quinn, an acetate. And Lou said, that's a hit. And Mike phoned us up the next day and said, you know, Lou Reisner says Quinn is a hit. So we all got together at Mike's place and uh, we were listening to the acetate on a little dancet record player, you know. And Manfred went over to the piano and hit the note on the grand piano in the corner of the room hit a note on it and said, your record player's running fast. We recorded it in A and that's in B flat. So it's running. The record has moved up slightly in pitch and it's brighter sounding as a result of being sped up. So we went back into the studio, sped the master tape up, added a few more things to it, like some tablers going 
come on without and uh klaus having already played flute on it played a piccolo flute a short flute you know we added that to it and there it was we finished it and it came out and it got to number one and again if lou reisner hadn't hadn't heard that acetate it might still be lying there to ask you about your songwriting some of those manfred's albums like mighty garvey there's a song on mighty garvey of yours cubist town which is one of the great psychedelic songs of the era yeah how much were you writing in that period and do you remember anything about writing that song because it's just beautiful well thank you i was always writing i was writing at school I wrote with a friend, Mike Wilson. I've still got a song there that I w- always wanted to get to the crystals. Ah. <laughs> a bit late now. I was I, I started writing because I was a real nerdy music fan. The, the weird thing, Jason, is I didn't have a record player until I joined Manfred Mann. We were very poor. I only realise in retrospect how poor yeah. we were. And uh, we couldn't afford a record player. And not only that, I lived in a house where the electricity was 110 volts. 
American voltage. Don't ask me. Really? I'm living in Wimbledon, South London. So any electrical appliance, and we didn't have any, had to be uh, run through a transformer to get the right voltage. So, But anyway, I couldn't afford a record player, but my then girlfriend, now my wife, she had a record player, and I was I was always picking up records. By this time, I'd got a day job working for an insurance company in the city of London, and I used to go down to Petticoat Lane, and there was a store there that used to sell promotion copies of things. Obviously, the DJs at radio stations were offloading them, and uh, I would pick up the latest single by The Drifters before it had even come out, and, and it would cost me something like a shilling. So I could easily take a risk for a shilling. And I always looked at where, which label it came from in America. There'd be a little thing saying a Phillies record or a Crest record. or a, And I'd look to see who wrote the songs as well. I was always interested in who wrote the songs. And I, I realized early on, without knowing what it was called, but, you know, the whole brittle building thing that certain names cropped up all the time, like Felice and Boudelot Bryant writing for the Everly Brothers yeah, and Lieber and Stoller writing for Elvis and the Coasters. So, and I just got into writing with, you know, I was in a little local band in Wimbledon. There was a studio called R.G. Jones. We went in, recorded an acetate of two of my songs that I'd written with, uh, with a school friend. And funnily enough, about... Three months ago, I got a note handed to me at a gig uh, with the Manfreds, and it said, I've forgotten her name now, Carol Smith or something. I used to be in the typing pool when you were at the insurance company in the city of London, and she remembers typing some lyrics for you. Wow. Can you give her a dedication tonight? Which I did. So, yeah, I'd always been writing. The John Burgess thing, bands don't write their own material. In retrospect, and I, it's not just me, we all see that our confidence was completely knocked by that. You know, our songs would not be considered for a single. Mike's, Mike's songs. And your mics, yeah. But all of us, you know, we didn't, we didn't stop writing. And I was writing stuff that got on albums. And Town, I got a, a friend, uh, wrote the lyric of that, a guy called Chaz Perrett, who was an art teacher, one of the... Sixth form, well, the secondary school in southeast London where I was living. I lived in Blackheath and he lived around there. And um, he just gave me lyrics and I sort of put a song to them. I have to say, you say psychedelic, but what I was, what I'd really been knocked out by was Lucy in the Sky with Diamonds. Mm. I wanted to write something in that sort of area. I'm glad you like it, Jason. I never listened to these things. All the old records I've done, people say, you know, do you like them? I said, well, I never hear them. Mm. <laughs> there, there's so much more to hear, yeah. so much more to do than to listen to my old records. The world was just the world of Apollinaire. I wandered round and round the busy square. I turned and floated gently upside down And one by one the people gathered round The rivers and the bridges turned to blue The thin edge of the night is creeping through The 
when sun is dying on the line and slowly melts into a sea of wine. one of the early albums and I keep meaning to revisit it They're called a now and then thing which I think is a really nice song but you know I wouldn't have written that if Paul McCartney hadn't written yesterday yeah, it's almost choral in a way now and then thing yeah I love writing I've always written and you know I've had a few covers around the world and uh, nothing as successful as Mike with handbags and glad rags and uh, build me up buttercup of course, we never even heard Build Me Up Buttercup. He wrote it with Tony McCauley for the foundations, and Tony was producing them. Uh, but Handbags and Gladrags he brought to us, and uh, you know, Manfred just didn't see it. And uh, there is a recording of it on the new compilation. of. It's the final track, isn't it? Yeah, because we recorded it at the BBC, just for a session at the BBC, which we often did. You know, we've, there's an album of BBC stuff out. We did other people's songs because we just happened to like them. You'd go in and do, you know, our latest single and maybe something off one of our albums and, and a song that someone else was having a hit with at that moment that we liked. And so we did Handbags, and uh, I have to tell you, Jason, I've never heard it. Oh, well. 
I'm not listening to the compilation album, so I've no idea. I'll have to feature it on this podcast. <laughs> it is a great song. Yeah. And he's had some, you know, Jimmy Witherspoon recorded a version of it. You know, yeah. it's a fantastic song. And then the semi-phonics picked it up. Here's one from the Manfreds, written by their singer Michael Darbo and called Handbags and Glad Rags. You ever seen a blind man cross the road? Trying to make the other side You ever seen a young girl growing old Trying to make herself a bride So what becomes of you, my love When they have finally stripped you off the handbags and the glad rags that your granddad's had to sweat so you could buy, baby. Once I was a young man and I thought all I had to do was smile. And you were still a young girl And you bought everything in style But once you think you're in, you're out Cause you don't mean a thing without The handbags and the glad rags That your granddad's had to sweat Sixpence for your sake And take a bottle full of pride Take four and twenty blackbirds In a cake And bake them all in a pie They told me led to the forming of McGuinness Flint. Oh, well, Manfred Brown broke up. I honestly thought that was that. You know, you only get one bite of the cherry. Again, chance. We broke up in the early summer of 69. 
I really thought that's it. The last thing we did was the Eamon Andrews show, which is a sort of 6 p.m. evening magazine program. I got on really well with Eamon because when I was a kid, my father used to get me up in the middle of the night to listen to heavyweight boxing matches from Madison Square Gardens, where the latest great white hope from England was being defeated terribly by Joe Louis or Ezard Charles or Rocco, Rocky Marciano. And Eamon Andrews was the commentator on those. Right. After we'd done our spot, we went to the green room for a drink. And Eamon and I bonded over a bottle of Remy Martin brandy, talking about the fact that I come from an Irish background and he's Irish and all that, and telling him, yeah, I used to hear him in the middle of the night when I was like 12 years old. It went on until about a quarter to eight. You know, we'd finished at half past six. Anyway, Eamon said, I better be going now, and handed me the bottle of brandy and said, take that with you. And uh, I went out of the TV studio, which is in central London, and it was a lovely summer's evening, and a cab came, and I gave the cab my home address, and I sat in the back of the cab. I wasn't drinking. I'd got this bottle of brandy in my hand, and I thought, well, that's that. What am I going to do now? Well, I have to do what my dear mum said, get a proper job. I really thought I wouldn't get another chance. And I sort of lazed about the whole summer of 1969. It got to the autumn, and Huey Flint was a friend and neighbour of mine, again played with John Mayle in the classic Bluesbreakers lineup. Huey, at that point, he'd worked with Georgie Fame. He'd been in Savoy Brown, I think. And at that point, he was working with Alan Price. And he literally lived around the corner from me. In fact, in a very complicated way, he was my brother-in-law, except he wasn't quite my then wife's sister. He was living with her. They'd been together for two years and they never got married. So Huey and I were drinking companions. I can't remember how, but we decided it'd be nice to get a band together. We weren't sure of a direction. We were thinking in two ways. There were two things, blood, sweat and tears get a jazzy thing with horns. And the other stimulus was the band to do something in that direction. We headed off in the blood, sweat and tears direction first. And we had a few rehearsals with a horn section and Chris Spedding on guitar oh. and Chris Lawrence on bass guitar, uh, who came from a jazz background at that point. But getting... Eight musicians were all doing other things together for a rehearsal when you haven't got a record deal or anything. It was just, we just couldn't make it happen. So we headed off in the other direction of the band. And having had the experience of all our songs being rejected at EMI, we carried on with the same lack of confidence into our Fontana deal. The one thing Huey and I agreed about was that we wanted to be a self-contained band like the Beatles or the band with that sort of rootsy approach. We found a lovely singer called Dennis Coulson just through word of mouth asking around. He wasn't professional, but he was. He had a lovely voice, came from the Northeast, you know, where some good voices come from. Then we couldn't find anyone else to play with. There was just the three of us for, for two, three months. And then Huey went out chance again he went out one night and he was having a drink in a pub with tony reeves who was an a and r man at decker but also played with john heisman's coliseum on bass 
and uh, they were talking and and uh, Tony said, what are you doing? And Huey said, well, Tom and I, I'm working with Alan Price. And I, Tom and I are trying to get a band together. Got this really good singer, but we need some people who write and play. And Tony said, I know these two Scots guys. Uh, you should meet them. And it was Benny Gallagher and Graham Lyle. Now, if Huey hadn't had that drink with Tony Reeves, we would never have Gosh. Benny and Graham, who came over to my place, sat down, they played like three songs, and Huey and I just looked at each other and said, wow, we found the people we want to work with. So McGuinness Splint happened like that. It was great fun. It was such, there was so much creativity going on. And then it was all over because Benny and Graham decided they wanted to pursue. And this was after the hit, When I'm Dead and Gone. Yeah, Dead and Gone. And we had Morton Barley Blues, which got to about number four. Then we had a second album and the single from it didn't do a thing. And it was after that that Benny and Graham decided to leave. They didn't want to do the second album. They felt we weren't ready. I sort of was riding the wave. Capitol Records were really behind us in a big way financially apart from anything else we had the best record deal in the whole emi group the only person who had a bigger royalty rate than us was paul mccartney gosh and and we had you know big advances and all that sort of stuff we were pressured by capital to have a new album out and and benny and graham didn't feel we were ready and they were right they were right we shouldn't have rushed into doing it but Record company pressure is a funny thing, so.
by the late 70s, you got the call from Paul Jones and that led to the blues band and that took on a huge thing of its own. Absolutely. And again, Jason, it wasn't so much chance then. Though, yes, getting that band together, Paul rang me up and said, I want to get a band together to do a couple of gigs at the Bridge House in Canning Town, which was a great music venue, seven nights a week and lunch times on Saturday and Sunday. Uh, and a big venue, although it was a pub, you could easily get four or 500 people in there. And uh, he said, I, I just want to get a band together for two gigs. There. Do you fancy doing it? I said, oh, I'd love to, but just two gigs. I'm really not into driving up and down the motorway anymore. I was doing quite a bit of writing at this point and producing. And I also made an album that came out, Stonebridge McGuinness, which it's a good album, but it didn't do anything. But I was busy and I was just busy enough. And I had a publishing deal where I was paid to sit at home and write songs, which is good fun. So I said, yes, if it's only two gigs. And Paul said, do you know anyone else who'd be interested? And I said, well, Huey's living around the corner still. I'll see if Huey's interested. And Huey said, yeah, I'll be up for it. Again, we were stuck for like two, three months. We tried various people who came along, but it didn't happen. And then Chance steps in again. I had a friend, neighbor, a fine American banjo player, a guy called Keith Nelson, who came over here to escape the draft during the Vietnam War. Really good bluegrass type player. Yeah, we were just chatting. And he said, you never guess who delivered my laundry today? <laughs> and I said, no, I never would guess. He said, Dave Kelly. Really? Yeah. And Dave was, uh, you know, a bit down on his luck. The gigs weren't coming in and he'd got a job driving a van delivering laundry. So I said, have you got a number for him? And Keith did. Keith knew him because they'd been in a band that had recorded at Rockfield. I think they were called Rock Salt or something. Right. And that hadn't worked out. So he gave me Dave's number and I rang him up and said, uh, getting a band together with Paul and Huey and uh, wondered if you'd be interested. Because I knew Dave's work. I knew what a good singer he was and what a good bottleneck player. And I said, do you know any bass players? And he said, well, I've been playing with this guy, Gary Fletcher. I said, well, would he be interested? Bring him along. We'll have a rehearsal. It was only when he walked in that he realized that the Paul was Paul Jones. He had no idea <laughs> who he was coming along. I don't think he knew Huey. Well, there aren't that many Hueys, but there are a lot of Pauls. And so, so there we are. The band fell into place. If Keith Nelson hadn't had his laundry delivered, I would never have thought of bringing Dave up. And an outlet for some of the songs that you did with Paul, like Come On In, that's a, a great song from that first blues band album. Yeah. we uh, Most of the album, it was pretty well thrown together. Uh, but yeah, Paul and I and Lou Stonebridge, who I've done a lot of songwriting with over the years, and funnily enough, I was in touch with him just this morning. He's living in France now. Paul was doing Joseph's amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat at a theatre in London. And we went over one afternoon because he'd done a matinee. He was doing an evening one with a couple of guitars. And we wrote this song, Come On In. And it was everything inspires everything else. We were doing James Brown's I Go Crazy in the live set with the blues band. We wanted to write something in that sort of thing, that sort of idiom, like very up-tempo, outward going. And, uh, yeah, we wrote Come On In just in an afternoon. I mean, just three guys sitting around in Paul's dressing room having a bit of fun. It's a good song. We did Rock Palace about six months later, which was 
the international rock program. Yes. Never came to England. It went from the Atlantic Ocean to the Pacific Ocean because it was on Russian TV. So it went over there to Vladivostok and it went to Galway in the west of Ireland. But England never took it. It was on every other. And we opened the show with Come On In and the place erupted. There were about, I don't know, 8,000 people, 12,000 people. Yeah, Paul and I wrote quite a bit for um, the blues band and I wrote some with Lou Stonebridge and I wrote some with Graham Lyle. So, you know, the writing still goes on. Since the blues band packed up, I don't think I've written a song, and that's 18 months ago now, because there's no outlet. You know, we're not going to do a new album with the Manfreds. I can't see that happening. Truth is, I don't know how you describe it, a heritage act. And people don't want to hear our new album particularly. You know, they might sit through two tracks of it. And there isn't really that much interest in our recording. stuff on your i think this might be a most recent album with uh benny and graham like uh acting on impulse that's a it's a great song oh that's just with graham oh is it he did a whole album with graham 40 years ago now i got in touch with him to see if he'd like to write something for the blues band and we got together and we really hit it off he'd stopped writing with benny at, at that point it was like a divorce for him and and benny they they weren't talking and Thankfully, they're reconciled after the years go by. But, yeah, Graham and I wrote a whole load of songs. And we've got some covers out of them as well. Christy Moore recorded one of them. The Furies recorded one of them. And Don Williams recorded one of them. Got into the country charts in America with it. I'm going to see Graham shortly at his 80th birthday party, and I'll say we should write a couple of songs. 
Are the Manfreds still touring then? Not at this moment, but we did one long tour throughout September, October, November last year. 33 dates in about 10 weeks, which is quite heavy going, just around the UK. This year, we're doing some dates without Mike Darbo, following a sort of more jazzy R&B thing, but with the hits thrown in as well. Yeah, That starts this March in Barnard Castle and ah. places like that. Good name. Yeah, that continues throughout the year. And then next year, we I hope Mike Darbo will come back and we'll do another big tour around England because, to be honest, the one we did this autumn was such fun. Yeah. We had such a great time playing. The audiences were good. They were sort of really getting off on it. It's a very tight band and we all love playing. We'd all like to have a TARDIS so we don't have to travel anywhere anymore. <laughs> I was talking to Al Cooper years ago and he said, Tom, we don't get paid to play, we get paid to travel. Yeah. <laughs> But romancing was on my mind I was acting on impulse Sorry if I made a fool of myself I was acting on impulse I kind of lost control of myself But did you ever cast your fate to the wind? Did you never Sorry if I made a fool of myself I was acting on you 
great music it's proven by hits from the 60s even when you're digging into the manfred's albums whether it's cubist town or into some of the mcginnis flint era material when i'm alone with you i think is a bit of a hidden gem on uh, for mcginnis flint which is one of yours so there's loads yeah there are yeah as i say i don't really listen to them so there's so, you know we know you mentioned it when i'm alone with you i wrote that with huey and dennis coulson and yeah we had a lot of fun if you listen to it now and you know that we're influenced by the band, you can really hear it. We, you know, we're trying for those harmonies that they did so effortlessly. Well, Tom, it's been an honour and privilege to uh, speak with you. Um, thank you so much for your time. Pleasure, Jason. See you. Bye-bye. Take care. Thank you for listening to the strange brew podcast if you do like the show please consider a small donation to help keep the show archive online it's 10 years since i started the podcast 
and hosting fees are increasing over time. All your support keeps the show running and helps me get amazing guests. To support me, just go to thestrangebrew.co.uk where you'll see a donate button on the homepage. Thank you very much. Plus, any reviews on your podcast services help to spread the word too. Thank you.